6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. That's on our clock here on earth. The, the clock is the wristwatch of his twin brother. Okay. But his clock has to be adjusted by Einstein's theory of relativity with what's called the Lorentz transformation. And it turns out when he gets back, he's going to be two years and five months younger. Now, if that doesn't bother you, you weren't listening carefully. See, time is not uh, uniform. It's a physical property that changes. Let's give you a better example. Let's imagine we could send him at Almost the speed of light, say 99.99% of the speed. You plug that in the Lorentz transfer, it would, it, it, on our clock, it would then take him nine years to do the round trip, but on his clock, it only would go in 33 days. He would experience 33 days time. When he got bound here, he'd discover we had advanced nine years, in fact. Einstein's theory of relativity, that length, mass, and velocity is relative, that was a special theory, but his general theory of relativity in 1915, there's no distinction between time and space. A physicist will not speak of time or space separately. He'll always speak of space-time because they're intimately related. And his theory then has been confirmed 14 different ways to 19 decimals. We live in a four-dimensional, not in three dimensions, four-dimensional continuum. That's what we mean by space-time. Time is not uniform. It's a physical property. It varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity. And I emphasize this in many of our classes because I think once you understand this, all kinds of problems go away to the biblical believer as he understands this. You and I exist in more than three dimensions. Paul lists four of them in Ephesians 3 verse 18. Current scientific understanding is that we apparently live in ten dimensions. Okay? But let me go at it another way. We think of time as linear. When we're in school, the teacher wrote a line on the blackboard from left to right. Beginning and the end was of something, of a person's life or empire or what have you. Because of that experience, most of us think of eternity as simply a line that starts at infinity over here on the left and goes to infinity on the right. We think of eternity as having lots of time. That makes wonderful poetry. It makes very, it's very poor physics. Is God subject to the restrictions of mass, acceleration, or gravity? Hardly. Of course not. So he's not somebody with lots of time. He's someone that's outside of the restrictions of the dimensionality of time. And this uniqueness is his personal imprint. That's how he authenticates his, his, his documentation. That's what Isaiah means when he thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Since God has the technology to create in the first place, he has the technology to authenticate his message by, uh, he authenticates it by uh, uh, demonstrating that his message originated from outside time. And that's what Isaiah means when he says, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. See, if you think of this, take this line that I just had on the screen and imagine it's coming out of the screen toward you, if you can visualize that here with my, my, uh, my uh, sketch. You and I are in this line of time. At the moment where we are, it's called the present. 
Behind us is a memory we call the past. In front of us is a hope that we call the future. To someone who's outside time, he can see the past, the present, and future simultaneously. And that's what, it's God alone. And he exploits that unique characteristic by writing the future before it happens. We can tell what's coming in the future by reading his writings of the past. And that's what Peter's talking about when he says, you have the more sure word of prophecy. My favorite quote of Einstein says, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. I love that. Prophetic scriptures, over 8,000 verses that are predictive on almost 2,000 different predictions on 700 different matters. According to one category by J. Barton Payne in the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, there's other ways you can parse those things. The Tanakh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek three centuries before Christ's ministry. We're going to lean on that one fact that you can prove from any good encyclopedia. The Old Testament was translated into Greek three centuries before the gospel period. It contains over 300 prophecies detailing the coming Messiah. I thought we'd go over each one of these. And of course, I'm kidding. We don't have time for that. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take eight of them. We're going to examine just eight. They're going to be the simplest of the eight, of the 300. Mike, we'll start with one you all know from Christmas cards, Micah 5, 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is, there be ruler in Israel whose goings forth that have been from old, from everlasting. We've all quoted that around Christmas time and so forth. I, there's a dozen things in here, by the way, but I'm going to pick one thing. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, right? What's the probability of taking one person at random in the history of the universe fulfilling this? Okay, well, it turns out the population of that village called Bethlehem, less than 10,000, okay? And so um, I'm going to divide that then by the population at any one time through the universe, which is something less than 2 billion, all right? So the probability of picking someone at random in the history of the universe, your chance of getting a person that was born in Bethlehem is something more rare than one part in 100,000. If I take the population of the village, divide that, you know, by the total population, I'm in the neighborhood of one part in 10 to the fifth. It's actually smaller than that, but that's good enough. How many of you know someone that's been born in Bethlehem? Anyone? Shame on you. Who, who do you know that's born in Bethlehem? Jesus Christ. Okay. Zechariah 9. This is another popular one. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the full of an ass. Each one of these from the Old Testament, each one of these was in black and white three centuries before Christ. Here's one that he's going to present himself as a king riding a donkey. How many people throughout history have presented themselves as a king to Jerusalem riding a donkey? Even General Allenby, when he conquered Jerusalem, insisted upon getting off his horse and walking in because he was a biblically sensitive believer. Interesting. But what's the probability of that happening? How many people have presented it? I don't know of none, but to be really cautious, I'm going to just suggest the probability of someone doing that is something less than one in a hundred. Am I safe? I could probably say less than one in a million, but I'm going to be safe. One in a hundred. Will you grant me that? Because you'll see what I'm going in a minute here. Another one of Zechariah, it's kind of fun. I love this one. He said unto them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. 
And of course, that rings in our ears because that was the price that Jesus was betrayed for, right? How many pieces, how many people have been betrayed throughout history for that price? I have no idea. But if I suggest you some less than one in a thousand, would you think that that's pretty comfortable? Probably less than 10 million, but I'm going to say one in a thousand, am I safe? Are you with me? Okay. The next verse adds some other things. We'll take it separately. The Lord said unto me, cast it out of the potter. The goodly price that I was prized out of him. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now this one starts to get a little wild. Let's uh, refresh our memory from the New Testament. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented of himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned that I have betrayed innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? You see to that. So he cast down the 30 pieces of silver in the temple, departed, and went out and hanged himself. We all remember that from Matthew 27. What happens to that money? The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, we got a problem. It's not lawful for us to put it into the treasury, for it's the price of blood. But the priests had on retainer some very sharp accountants. It says you can't put it in the treasury, but you can prepay expenses with it. They have expenses they've got to deal with every year. You can prepay those. That's just as good as putting it in the treasury. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. There was a bargain piece of land. Every year the temple had to bury, when someone died in the precincts that they didn't have any uh, genealogy, any, any record of, the temple was stuck with the cost of burial. So there was always some number per year that would do that. That was a, a burden they had. So they bought this potter's field, so now they had a place where they could deal with that problem to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field is called the field of blood to this day. Okay. Let's take a look at Zechariah eleven thirteen. The price, 30 pieces of silver. Where did the transaction take place? In the house of the Lord, the temple. Who got the money? The potter, the guy that owned that field. This is all predicted in Zechariah 11.13. What's the probability of that being just a coincidence? A happenstance? I could say one in 100 million and I could, I could sell you that, but I'm going to say it's less than 100,000. Are you with me? Because it's got all three factors all together. This is really one of my favorites. It's a little more obscure perhaps. Zechariah 13.6. One shall say, and then what are these wounds in thy hands? Then she shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. When I was a teenager, I was on a kick for a while of writing prophecy verses on a card and memorizing them. I'd put the verse on one side and the, and the reference on the other, and I'd carry a few of these with me and try to learn them. And I added this to my little collection. But as I tried to memorize this, I kept stumbling. The more I tried to look at this, the more clumsy I... One shall say, what are these wounds in the hands? And he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I could not picture a group of Roman soldiers driving spikes through his wrists into some 12 by 12s as being in the house of his friends. See, the more I looked at this, what it was really saying didn't jibe with anything I was thinking of until I was reading John 20. Remember, he appeared to his disciples. John wasn't with him. They said, boy, you should have been with us last night. Guess who showed up? Well, uh, then he shows up a week later. Thomas said unto him, except I shall see the hands and the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay, and then eight days, again, his disciples were with him and Thomas this time was with him. 
Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. He said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it in my side. And be not faithless, but believing. That must have shook Thomas up because he realized Jesus heard what he had said eight days ago. And he's crushed. He shook. I believe he falls on his knees. He said, Thomas answered and said to me, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now let me tell you the inference I draw from the Zechariah 13.6. I don't believe what wounded Jesus was the spikes in his wrists. I believe what wounded Jesus was Thomas's unbelief. But anyway, set that aside. How many people taken at random have been wounded in their hands in the house of their friends? I have no idea, but if I said less than one in a thousand, am I comfortable with that? Surely, that's pretty rare. You'll, it's going to be rare enough as you'll see in a minute. Isaiah, we have to go to Isaiah 53 for at least one of these things. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. He opened not his mouth. Question, how many prisoners accused of a, crap, a capital crime, a death penalty situation, make no defense even though they're innocent? How many prisoners that are facing death do not even defend themselves? I don't think it's zero, but it is probably pretty rare. But if I say less than one in a thousand, are you comfortable with that? Okay. One more from here. It's a dandy. He said, I made his, he made his grave with the wicked, and he was with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. How many died among the wicked, yet were buried in the rich? If I say less than one in a thousand, are you comfortable with that? Okay. One last one, and then we'll wrap it up. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Psalm 22 is written in first person singular as if he was hanging from a cross. It says, For dogs have compassed me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. What makes this so remarkable is this was written 700 years before crucifixion was invented. The official form of capital punishment in Israel was stoning. Here it describes crucifixion so precisely in that psalm that the American Medical Association has articles in their journals about the cause of death. 700 years before the crucifixion was invented. How many people taken at random have died having their hands and pierced feet? Quite a few. But in terms of the total population of the planet Earth, I'd say less than 1 in 10,000. Are you comfortable with that? Okay. Now, eight prophecies we've looked at. Bethlehem, king on a donkey, 30 pieces of silver, temple potter and all that business, wounds in the hands, no defense though innocent, died with the wicked but buried among the rich, rich and crucified. I've given you eight prophecies here. Now, to, what's the probability of a particular person fulfilling all eight? Now, that turns out to be an exercise in combinatorial probabilities. And we need a little tutorial here. Let me imagine that there, I have 100 people out here, and let's assume... 60% of you are male, and 40% of you are female, just for a, a sample here. If I'm blindfolded and reach out and touch one of you on the shoulder, what's the probability that I happen to have stumbled on a female shoulder? Well, you take the population of the whole thing, right? And if I've got 60-40, my probability of getting a female is probability 0.4, or 40%, right? With me so far? Okay, that's no problem. Let me give you a different thing. Let's assume I have a population out there in which 60% of you are right-handed and 40% of you are left-handed. Now I'm going to blindfold myself and I go through and I touch somebody on the shoulder. 
What's the probability I happen to have stumbled on a left-handed person? Well, again, it's 40%. You're with me so far? Now the question that's more complicated to think through, what's the probability of my having selected a left-handed female? Well, what I have to do is take the one distribution and the other distribution and mix them, and the probability of getting that combined of those two is the product of those two. In other words, the probability of a left-handed female is 0.4 times 0.4, which is 0.16. You with me? If it's 40% for either one, it's 16% for the combination. How do you determine that? By taking the product, is my point. You need to understand that to go to the next step, okay? Okay, I've got these eight prophecies, and it turns out that to multiply them, that's the reason I've used powers of 10, to multiply them, all I have to do is count the zeros. So if I've got this list, and I take each one times each one, it turns out I have 10 with 28 zeros after it. 10 to the 28th, you with me? That's the mechanics of it. That's a number that's pretty big. I'm going to try to get across to you how big that is. Okay? Now I take the total population of the period of time since Christ to today. It's, it's something less than 100 billion. The combined probabilities of those eight would be 10 to the 28th divided by the total population I can choose from. There's 1028 divided by 10 to the 11th. And, I, and when you divide, you, when you multiply, you just add exponents. When you divide, you subtract exponents. So that's, that's one chance in 10 to the 17th. That turns out to be a pretty big number. Now, if we were in a statistics class, and I was trying to get across to you the concept of one in 100, we imagine that as being a big jar with silver dollars in it. And we take one silver dollar and we mark it, mix it up, and, and I mix it up so my chance of picking any one is uniform. I reach down there and I pick one. The chance that I pick the one that we marked is one in a hundred. You with me? Well, I want to do that here, except my problem is I need a jar with 10 to the 17th silver dollars in it. How big is that? It turns out, if I take the state of Texas and fill it with silver dollars, it'll be two feet deep to have 10 to the 17th silver dollars. And I have Gary blindfolded. I take those silver dollars, I mix them up so the one we've marked, it can be anywhere. And he reaches, he goes through the state of Texas and he finally, with a mind, and he finally reaches down and picks one. The chance that he picked the one we marked is one part in 10 to the 17th. Okay? But see, the thing is, I've just used eight prophecies so far. I'm going to double that. I'm going to take 16 prophecies. I've got 300 to choose from. I picked eight of the simplest ones. Okay? I'm going to assume that the next eight, I'm going to go through them all, but I'm just going to assume that the next eight I pick are going to have no decrease in likelihoods. Now, it actually will, because the more you reach down, the more technical they become, the more of the world they exclude. But I'm going to ignore that. I'm just going to assume that the likelihoods are no less likely than the eight I picked. Well, I had 10 to the 28 the first time, so this time I've got... Um, 10 to the 20th times 22 is 10 to the 56. I again have to divide by the 10 to the 11th. So now I have 10 to the 45 silver dollars to deal with. It turns out the state of Texas isn't big enough. In fact, to get a bucket of 10 to the 45 silver dollars, I need to create a ball of silver dollars that have the radius of the earth to the sun, 30 times the radius of the earth to the sun. And if I have that ball of silver dollars, I'll have 10 to the 45. See, I'm trying to get across. These powers of 10 are enormously powerful 
tools. That's why they're so prevalent in advanced math and in scientific circles. But that's a big ball. Now this time we got to put Gary in a space suit and sent him out there and then he's blindfolded and he grabs out one at random somewhere in space there and that's the one that we picked. I'm going to do this just one more time. I've got 300 to choose from. I'm going to not double it this time. I'll triple it. But I'm still talking 48 out of 300. You with me so far? Okay, now I've got 300 to choose from. And again, I'm going to assume the likelihoods are no less likely, uh, 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 no more unlikely. But I'm going to, that's a, a gross assumption. But this time I, I'm got 6 times 10 to the 28, which turns out to be 10 to 168. I again have to take out 10 to the 11th from that. That gives me 10 to the 157th. That is a number beyond your imagining. Now I've got to somehow make a ball that'll give me 157. Well, let's start by taking a, making a ball, an imaginary ball, of every atom in the universe. Believe it or not, that's been estimated by uh, scientists to be in the neighborhood of 10 to the 66th. 10 to the 66th is a long way from where I'm headed. I want to get 10 to the 157th somehow. Okay, I'll do that silly little thing for each atom in the universe. So that's 10 to the 66th times 10 to the 66th. Can you imagine that? You can't reimagine that. A ball of every atom in the universe, make one of those for each atom in the universe. I now have a, a representation of 10 to the 132. I've got to repeat this exercise. That's a crazy thing. Let's assume I do it for every second in the universe. I'm going to assume 15 billion years as a commonly used estimate of the age of the universe. For every second in the universe. That turns out to be 10 to the 17th. So if I take 10 to the 132 and multiply it by 10 to the 17th, that still only gives me 10 to the 149th. I'm nowhere near my 10 to the 157th. In fact, I've got to do this whole silly exercise in my mind 100 million times to get to 10. That's a number that's beyond any of us, our capacity to even imagine. And yet, we've only dealt with 48 of 300. You understand what I'm saying? So this is, of course, excerpted from our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, uh, Hour 13, a little thing. And I haven't dealt with the most amazing his detailed genealogies in the Bible is breathtaking when you understand its intricacies. The specific prediction of the precise day that the Messiah would present himself as the king of Jerusalem is the most amazing passage in the Bible. Daniel 9.25. And there's all the Old Testament Midrashic prophecies that are just absolutely astonishing. There's a scar. It, the Redeemer would come from the race of man. Genesis 3.15. In fact, from Adam, the, the, I mean from Abraham, the, the, uh, the nation from which it had come. Jacob, the tribe, and David, and then the family. 8,000 predictive verses on almost 2,000 predictions on over 700 different matters, as I mentioned. There are no other equivalents available to us anywhere on planet Earth. Islam's Quran has none of this. Hindus' Vita has none of this. The Bhagavad Gita has none of this. The Book of Mormon, Nostradamus's centuries, the occultic mediums, channelers, New Age, none of them have the proven track record that the Bible has. That's what Peter means when he says, you have the more sure word of prophecy. Here's our epistemological approach. We establish the integrity of the design. You discover the Bible, 66 books by 40 different guys over almost 2,000 years. It's designed that every detail is there by deliberate design. That design presents, that establishes the identity of a person. 
of Jesus Christ. And when you discover who he is, and how you do that? Because you look at all these different prophecies, born of a virgin, Bethlehem, out of Egypt, and he'd be, all the details of him that are, these are just the ones quoted in the Gospels. And he'd be disbelieved by the rulers and all of that. Just his last week, he'd make a triumphal entry in Jerusalem, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, smitten, shepherd, be like, he'd be given vinegar and gall, they'd cast lots for his garments, his side would be pierced, not a bone would be broken. He'd die among the malefactors. His dying words foretold. He'd be buried by a rich man. He would rise from the on the third day. His resurrection would be followed by the destruction of Jerusalem. All these things are laid out and quoted in the in the testament and quoted in the new. So again, we have established the design. It gives you the identity, and in it, that when you understand who he is, he authenticates the whole package. That's your epistemological approach. Praise his holy name. Our challenge, I want to give you one last thing, and you, if you accept this, you flunk. I suggest you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about the gospel period. There's more than any other period in history, including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee, climbed the mountains of Judea. You need, if you accept that, you flunk. You have to do two things here. You've got to find out what the Bible really says, and you've got to find out what's really going on. That's your challenge. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your more sure word of prophecy. We thank you for Peter's admonition that we recognize that we have something even more powerful than having been eyewitnesses because we are in possession of your word. And we thank you for the elegance of its design. We thank you for its conspicuous evidence of having originated outside space-time that we might behold the coming king, that we might be partakers of his divine nature through, the, through your word and through the Holy Spirit. Father, we do pray that would, you would reignite in each of us a new passion, a new appetite, new hunger for these things as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.